Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today we are continuing our sermon series, Building Back Better, exploring the book of Haggai. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and would love to have you join us over there. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everyone here. Good morning, everyone on YouTube. It's fantastic to be with you, and it's fantastic to be getting in once again to Haggai. This has been a brilliant book so far, in, in my opinion. I, I love the book of Haggai, and I think there's so much that it has to say to us. And so far, what we've seen is that God has called his people to begin this project of building back the temple, building back his house. And we've seen over the last few weeks, there's been splutters along the way, but they are getting on with this project. They have picked up their tools, and they are now beginning. But this week, in this passage, we're going to see quite a distinct dimension to this message, and it's a very necessary dimension to this message that we really need to have. And so this passage that we're going to look at today has a challenge for every generation that has ever existed and ever will exist, to know God. So, Let's hear the words of the living God, what he's saying this morning. So we're in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive trees have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So the first point for us to look at this morning is there is this concept of An unclean heart leading to unclean hands leading to unclean handiwork. So what's going on in this passage in light of that? What is the point of this passage? You might hear it and say, I I don't really understand. And that's, that's very reasonable. It's not the most straightforward thing to understand. So if you think it's odd, fair enough. What we see here is that Haggai is asking the priests a very pointed question. In the same way that we see Jesus doing, Jesus in the the Gospels knows what kind of question to ask 
to provoke a reaction, to, to get something out of it in the Gospels. And so Haggai is doing the same thing. He's going to the priests, and he asks them about the concept of ceremonial defilement, ceremonial uncleanness. This is something that we see in the Old Testament law, ceremonial uncleanness. It means that you're unclean. It doesn't mean you're actually dirty. It means that you're ceremonially unclean, symbolically unclean, and you can't worship in God's temple until you've been made clean. And so he asks them about it. In verses 12 to 13, he says, If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or any kind of food, does it become holy? And they answered, no. So if you've got food that has been set apart to God and you're carrying it in your clothes and your clothes touch some other food, does that other food become holy? And no, holiness doesn't contaminate. But, he says, if someone who is unclean because they've touched a dead body then goes and touches some food, does that food become unclean? And the answer is yes, it does. That's what Leviticus 22 and Numbers 19 say. It's like you're carrying the uncleanness from the dead body over to that food. And so they, they give the right answers because they know the law. And what the law is communicating to us in these passages, bear in mind that the law is always teaching something. What the law is communicating is holiness doesn't just spread, but sin, sin gets into every nook and cranny of your life. If sin starts in your heart, it will manifest itself, do what you do with your body. That's what the law is communicating. And so what Haggai does here is he draws an analogy. He's making a point for them. He's saying in the same way, you are carrying on in sin. You're carrying on in unrepentance. You're not bothered about what you do with your lives, and yet you're building the temple. It's as though, in the analogy, their sin is the dead body, and the temple is the clean food. Their sin is making them build a temple which is impure. And so they are, they're doing the tasks that God's given them. God says, build the temple. And so what are they doing? They're building the temple. They're doing Christian things, quote-unquote. But the question is, where is their heart? Are they far from God? Are they just doing it because they need to do it? Are they doing it because they are passionate about serving God? And so the challenge to the priests is, is particularly pointed, actually, because the, shame, the, the bad thing is they know the rules of the law. They know the commands. They know that if you do this, this changes. But what they've missed is that the whole point of the law is faith. The whole point of the law is that you need to know God. These things are expressions of knowing God. The reason we have unclean and clean foods, so that we have an expression of what it means to know God. They've missed that. Now, why is this so important? What's the big deal about this? What does it communicate to us about God? Well, the main thing it communicates is that God does not need stuff. God is not like the gods of ancient mythology. He's not like the ancient Greek gods. He's not like the ancient Persian gods. He's not like the ancient Egyptian gods. These gods who made humans to be either their slaves or their playthings. They made humans in order to do the jobs that they didn't want to do or to help them or just to be little creatures that they could muck around with. 
They made humans to simply do things for them. But that is not what God is like. That's not what the living God is like. He needs nothing. He isn't looking for your stuff. In fact, I'd say this. You aren't useful to God. He isn't needy. He is not in heaven thinking, I really need them to do, to do this for me, otherwise I can't do it. He doesn't need you. And so the people may well have said to God, well, why do you care what we're doing with our lives? You still get your temple. And God says, that doesn't matter. In, in chapter two earlier, in the passage that me and Andy both preached on the last two weeks, he says this, the silver is mine and the gold is mine declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, what he's saying is, you guys have just been in Babylon, one of the richest countries in the world. If I wanted a fancy temple, I could have had the most insanely fancy temple back there. I don't need your stuff. In fact, when God created this world, he could have created a, a fantastic temple right there in the Garden of Eden. Instead, where does he put the silver? Where does he put the gold? He puts it in the ground, ready for humans to find. God doesn't need your stuff. Some of the things that we often can think that God needs, you know, especially in the Old Testament, and they might think, well, God needs our sacrifices. Something that we might think today is God needs people. We need to go out there and do stuff because God needs more people. But as I say, he isn't in heaven being needy. And this is one of the things that we see constantly throughout the Bible. God doesn't actually need this stuff. So, for instance, sacrifices. Hosea 6 verse 7 says this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. See, God isn't saying stop offering sacrifices, but what's going on is that the Israelites are kind of offering them because they think that's what they need to do with no change in their life. And God's saying, if you're going to offer it to me like that, I don't want them. You know, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Think about that. Was Adam offering sacrifices? Did Adam have to do anything? He just had to know God and obey him. Another thing, you know, a people... We want God to have the most people. That's what he needs. Well, Deuteronomy 7 says this. He's talking to Israel and he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now listen what he says to them. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it, is the, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. If God wanted more stuff, don't choose Israel, choose Egypt. Instead, he rescues Israel out of Egypt. This is the Lord God Almighty. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our stuff. Paul sums it up best in Acts 17 when he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Powerful. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need their temple. He doesn't need their hard work. He doesn't need them to just put the time in. I really want you this morning to find freedom in the truth that you aren't useful to God. Now that might sound backwards, but it's only when you realize that that you realize something precious. God is not looking for minions to just do a job for him. So why do we obey? Why does God ask us to do things? Why do they need to build this temple? Can't they go, oh, fair enough. Well, we'll stop the project then. Why is it so wrong to do it, even if your heart isn't fully in it for God? Why do we need to know God? This is what Jesus says in Matthew 15. The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Their heart is far from me. That's what he's looking for, the heart. And the reality is the heart that's in love, that love manifests itself in obedience. The heart that loves rejoices in obedience. God calls us to obey because God is seeking worshippers. Just think about this. The God who is life and love in itself, the fullness of both of those things, has no obligation to love us, let alone those who have wronged him. And yet, he comes down to us. He makes the decision to condescend to us. I love the way that the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, starts by saying, though obedience is due to God by the creature, Yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessed joy and reward apart from some voluntary condescension on God's part. We could never know God as our life and reward unless he comes down to us. He shares his love with us. He shares his life with us and yet never loses his right to demand our obedience. Because all the actions that we do in Obedience are an expression of the heart. All our actions are to be an expression of what's going on in here. God isn't concerned with our ability to build him a building, or how much time we can spend reading our Bible, or how much we pray, or how much we can lead worship. God isn't interested in you doing stuff if your heart is far from him. Unless we have a heart that wants God, that cries out for God, that needs God. And so all these things that we do are simply an expression of the fact that we cannot go a day without God. That is what God is looking for. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now listen, there's two things that Jesus says there. He who does the will of my father, and yet these people are saying, 
We did the will of your father. We prophesied. We raised the dead. We healed the sick. We cast out demons. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Doing the things is the expression of knowing God. He isn't looking for your stuff. He's looking for you. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't do things that God commands. As I say, it doesn't mean that the Israelites could say, well, we'll leave the temple and just focus on our relationship with God. It doesn't mean you say, well, in that case, I should probably stop being a part of a church on a Sunday. Or, well, in that case, I should probably stop reading my Bible. No, no, no. That doesn't give, this doesn't give us license. But it does cause us to re-examine why we do those things in the first place. To ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? Does it delight your heart to be in his presence If Christianity is a chore, then the question to ask is, how familiar are you with Jesus? Immerse yourself in him, and these things become a delight. Because when the object of your obedience becomes a delight to you, obedience itself becomes a delight. I want to read what Jesus himself said. The ultimate incentive that Jesus gives us for our obedience. In John 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The reward for wanting Jesus more is Jesus. God is not looking for minions. I want to leave you with that challenge and encouragement this morning that God is not looking for minions. He wants to share his life. He wants to share his love. He wants you to have your heart satisfied in him. That's an encouragement because it means there is nothing you can do to earn or lose what God has given. But it's a challenge because what it means is if you love God, if you want him with everything, then there is no limit to what you'll do for him. There is no limit to the things that he can ask of us. Do you know God Do you know Jesus? Do you want to live your life for him? That's the challenge. It's the challenge that the Israelites had. Do they want to get this temple done or do they want to obey God and love him? And that's the challenge for us. Do we know God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who dwells in heaven that you are the God who doesn't need our stuff. You were the God who was quite satisfied before anything was made. And yet, Lord, you delighted to pour out your love, to pour out your life, to create, to be in relationship with, to make covenant with your people. So, Lord, I pray that as we seek to know you more, that we would find delight in doing the things that you ask of us. Lord, we thank you that you are a relational God, not a mechanical God, 
Not a God who just needs servants, but as we heard earlier in, in the reading that Ian brought, Lord, that you are the God who calls us friends. So draw near to us, we pray, God, that we may draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.